Well, we'll get started. It's 8.32 is what that clock says. So I'm assuming that if you are here and you found this room, that you intended to be here. Not the easiest room to find. So I'm uh, glad you're here. I appreciate you being here. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Randy Roper from the middle of Oklahoma. Edmond is a suburb of Oklahoma City. And so I'm happy to, uh, to be here with you, and I'm glad that you are here as well. I know that we have some ministers in here. Uh, do we have any shepherds in here, elders, any elders? Probably have some people who just love to read the Bible and like the weather at Malibu and enjoy coming to the annual lectures, right? Which is a very good thing. That's what we, most of us probably are as well. I'm glad you're here. Um, about five years ago, my family had the opportunity to take a group of students from Oklahoma Christian University over to Europe for a summer study session. And we had some free weekends, and so we got to each decide what we wanted to do. And one of the things that I wanted to do, and I told my family, we've got to go to Scotland. And I knew two things about Scotland, mainly. One is that's where St. Andrews is. So we've got to do that. So we went to St. Andrews, the birthplace of golf. And I didn't see a burning bush, but I know there had to be one there because we were on holy ground there. <laughs> And that was a, quite an, an experience. Uh, had a great time, got to play golf there. And then the other thing was William Wallace from Braveheart, right? right? We all saw the movie Braveheart. And so we go to the Edinburgh Castle. I'd done a little bit of research ahead of time, and I knew that guarding the entrance to the Edinburgh Castle was the statue of William Wallace. It was put there in 1929. Of course, for generations before that, he was one of the heroes of the people of Scotland. And so, that's my son, that's me. Uh, boy, that was five years ago. Now he is taller than me. <laughs> Here's a closer view of the statue. And you've probably seen the movie Brave, Braveheart. Maybe you've um, done a little research on your own. And you know uh, this great story of William Wallace. And, and so, I'm sure I'm the first person to do this. And it was much to my son's embarrassment that I chose that moment to quote that famous line out loud. They may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. That's right. He was not impressed with that. So we tour the castle, and we leave, and then, wouldn't you know it, just a few hundred yards away from the castle, we actually saw William Wallace. He was there. There he is. He's let himself go a little bit since his fighting days. Now, this is a very opportunistic uh, local who is trying to take advantage of some financial opportunities <laughs> for the tourist. I love that he has a wedding band on. <laughs> but actually, about 60 miles away in the city of Sterling, there is another monument to William Wallace. In fact, there's a huge monument to William Wallace. And back in 1997, right after the movie Braveheart came out, this sculptor named Tom Church actually sculpted a statue of William Wallace, but it was in the likeness of Mel Gibson. It had the face of Mel Gibson. And emblazoned on the base of this statue of William Wallace, slash Mel Gibson, was the word freedom. And so he donated it to the locals, and so the city of Sterling, where the monument, the official monument to William Wallace is, decided this would be a good addition to our a visitor center. And so they put it up in the visitor center uh, parking lot, near the parking lot of the visitor center, while the locals couldn't stand it. They despised it. In fact, someone said it was 
one of the most, uh, the, the, the worst pieces of public art in all of Scotland. And so, as you can imagine, people started uh, vandalizing it. They started vandalizing this statue. I don't know if you can tell by the face, it sort of resembles Mel Gibson in the movie. And so they started vandalizing this statue. And so you know what city officials did? They built a fence around it. They put a fence around the statue. Now, surely you can see the irony there. <laughs> Here you have the guy who is known for his rally cry of freedom, and they put him in a cage. <laughs> They're protecting him. Could there be a better metaphor <clears throat> for how many Christians live their lives? I mean, think about that. We have been set free from Christ, or my Christ, from sin, from guilt, from, from so many things, and yet so many Christians live their lives caged. Caged by insecurity, caged by fear, caged by guilt. And I think that is true for most of us, many of us as Christians, unfortunately. But when I start to personalize that, when I start to think about my own life, my own role as a minister, I think this is how many of us in ministry, in shepherding, in church work, I think this is how many of us, unfortunately, perform our ministries, go about ministry. How often do we, knowing that we have this great message of freedom, that we have this great proclamation of the gospel, that we have opportunities to help people be set free from their addictions, from their struggles, from their guilt, from legalism, from so many other things, and yet we cage that message. We don't live as fully released, set free ambassadors of Christ. How often do we allow our own insecurities, our own fears, our own desire for approval, our own anxieties, how often do we allow those things to keep us from doing ministry, from proclaiming this great message of freedom that we have for the world? And so I want us to think about why that is and what we can do to overcome that. And one of the things I want us to do, this is a two-part series, is to look at a couple of scenes from the life of Elijah, the great prophet. And I want us to look at his life, what God was doing in his life, how he responded to what God was doing in his life, but not only that, how he responded to the culture around him, to what was going on around him. And my hope is that we can allow Scripture to really speak truth into our lives, into our ministries, but also a word of encouragement. I hope that you will leave here, and if you choose to come tomorrow, I hope that you will leave being encouraged by Elijah's story and by what God has done through him and what God can do through us so that we can release ourselves or allow God and his spirit to release us from being captive by our own insecurities and fears and all those other things that keep us from, from fulfilling the calling that Jesus has called us to, that God has called us to. I'm going to, by the way, try to click my own slides. I, uh, I might get behind. Slides for me, it's kind of a love-hate relationship. As a listener, I love to have visuals. I'm a visual learner. As a speaker, sometimes I feel like they're a little restrictive, but I will, uh, I'm being empathetic, so I will try to keep up with the slides. We'll see how that goes. So when you think about Elijah, if you're like me, you probably think about one of my favorite stories, this great battle with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. 
or as they say in the Northeast, caramel. <laughs> and so that's what I often think about. I love that story. It's this epic showdown between God and this false God. It's between Elijah, the, the sole spokesperson for God, and these many hundreds of prophets of Baal. And that's what many of us think of, but that, that's the superhero version of Elijah. That's a flannel graph version of Elijah. James tells us that Elijah was a person just like us. He wasn't a superhero. He wasn't a um, Bible hero. I mean, we call him that. We tell our kids that's what he was, but he was a person, which means that he experienced some of the same challenges, some of the same struggles, maybe some of the same insecurities and fears that we do, either in our lives in general or in our ministries. Now, the circumstances, I'm sure, look very different. But as a human, as a person, he experienced some of the same things that we do. And that should give us great comfort. The fact that he can relate to us and we can relate to him. When we go to his story, when we go to the text, and we see some of the things he was feeling, some of the things he was going through, some of the things he said, the decisions he made, we can relate to that because we might do the very same thing. And yet God still works through him in powerful ways to bring about transformation. And that should give us great hope. I think it's important for us to set the scene before we look at how Elijah enters into um, the story, the narrative. And so, as you know, after Saul, David, and Solomon, the nation of Israel is divided. Several events sort of... Uh, make that happen, prompt that to happen. We have the northern kingdom, we have the southern kingdom of Judah uh, with Jerusalem. And so Asa is the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, but in the northern kingdom things are not so good, they're not so stable. And so let's look at some of those examples of that. First Kings chapter 15, starting in verse 25. Nadab, son of Jeroboam, became king of Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. <coughs> Verse 26, a very important phrase here. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following, following the ways of his father and commanding or committing the same sin his father had caused Israel to commit. And so we have this king in the northern kingdom, and he is doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. After just a couple of years as king, Nadab was murdered by a man who would become his successor, that is, Basha. Guess what he did? Can you guess? Hmm. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, 1 Kings 15, 34. So then Basha's son, Elah, he becomes king. He continues that same godless influence on the people, on the position as king, and like his father, he also does evil in the eyes of the Lord encouraging the worship of pagan idols. But only after two years, one day, Elah is getting drunk at his buddy's house, and he is murdered by a guy named Zimri. But Zimri doesn't just murder him. He murders all the males in the house. Why would he do that? No successor. No successor. So guess who becomes king? Zimri. He becomes king, but his reign was also short-lived. In fact, just a week. <laughs> the people revolt against him. They surround him. And so he sets the place on fire. And he ends up dying in the fire. And you think, okay, 
Now maybe we will get a good king. You know, Asa in the southern kingdom seems to have brought some stability. Maybe the northern kingdom will have a good king. Well, not so, not so much. Um, a man named Omri becomes king of Israel, and he reigns as king for 12 years. Guess what Omri did? <clears throat> Evil in the eyes of the Lord, 1 Kings 16.25. I know we're going through this part very quickly, but you get the story. You know what's happening here. So Omri's son becomes king after him, and the apple didn't fall far from the tree. The new king is Ahab. He reigns for 22 years over Israel. Ahab, son of Amri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. That's very important. And so he welcomes idol worship, specifically the worship of Baal, into God's covenant people. He does evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so that's the spiritual landscape of Israel. When Elijah steps onto the scene, year after year after year, corrupt leadership, men doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so Ahab is the new evil king of Israel. And he marries someone named Jezebel. It's interesting that nowhere else do we hear about the wives of the kings. But we hear about her. Stay tuned. She will probably have a prominent role, right? <laughs> and so all these kings do evil in the eyes of the Lord. It seemed to get progressively worse with every new king. And if you think about it, isn't that the nature of ungodliness? I mean, we go down that road. We rebel against God. We disobey God. We do something that serves self. And once we go down that road, either we think, you know, that's not so bad. In fact, I'm kind of enjoying this. Or we think, nothing happened to me. I'm getting away with it. Or, usually and or, that becomes normalized. It becomes who I am, who I've become. And so I keep going down that path. We see this with families. We see this with individuals. We see this with nations, right? Moving away from God, progressively farther and farther away from God. And as we do that, every step of the way, it becomes more and more normalized. And what would have seemed very unusual, very ungodly, very wrong back here, now all of a sudden, it's not that big of a deal. We've accepted it. It's a part of who we are. And that seems to be at least partially what's happening with Israel. They're establishing their own set of values. God's values weren't applicable to them in their minds. They're creating their own set of values, their own ways of doing life. And basically, in doing that, they are moving farther and farther away from God. They have established themselves in a place of rebellion, and they are led by these homicidal, narcissistic, corrupt tyrants who are obviously influencing the people. And so that's where Elijah steps onto the scene. Can you imagine? <laughs> as a mouthpiece, as a messenger of God, you're asked to step into that mess and say something, do something, to bring them back closer 
to God. I mean, can you imagine that? But we can't imagine that, can't we? Because as we read about and as we hear about Israel, the corrupt leadership, the corrupt values, it all hits too close to home, doesn't it? I mean, think about our own society, our own world. We aren't too unlike that. Have we not moved farther and farther away? Now, let me just pause for a minute. I'm not one of those that say we need to get back to the good old days, right? The 50s or the 60s or whenever it was, because there were obviously issues and problems, things that were done in the name of being faithful to God that were very godless. So I'm not saying that you know, we, we've moved past the good old days of, of our nation, one nation under God. But we have as a nation moved away from the idea and the ideal of God and kingdom living. And so we understand that. We understand the spiritual landscape, at least partially, of, of what Elijah walked into. And yet, we don't have presidents who are killing people directly. We don't have some of the same challenges, right? But we can understand what it's like. And so we could, we could sit here and talk about all kinds of statistics and research that's done on indicators of a godless society. We could talk about broken homes. We could talk about moral failure. We could talk about um, sex trafficking. We could talk about so many things. But we don't need to. I mean, you and I, we all know that. We all know what's going on in our world. We all know that it seems to be moving away from God. The question is, what can we do? And how do we do it? And so I want us to think about the typical response to a family, to a community, to a nation that seems to be moving away from God. And maybe that's a subtle way of saying it. Maybe we should be more direct. A nation, a family, a community that is outwardly hostile toward God. What do we do? There's been some responses over the years, right? And sometimes, see, I, I told you I'd get behind on the slides. <laughs> I, I can't do two things at once. And so, typically there's been some traditional responses to evil in our world, if you will. Okay? And one of those is this outrage, this, this you know, we've got to, to, um, to find the source of the evil, right? And so these people, when they're not wringing their hands in worry, they're pointing their fingers in blame because you have to pin it on someone. Because if I can pin it on someone, what do I do to myself? I absolve myself of responsibility. That's right. That's right. We can lower the boom on them. This isn't my fault. I didn't get us into this mess. We got to find out who did. It's the government. It's the media. It's the president. It's the Democrats. It's the Republicans. It's you know the NRA. It's <laughs> we've got to find out who it is, and so we can blame them. And we don't just blame them, like Brad said. We actively pursue vengeance upon them, right? And we even incite violence and hatred, right? Go on social media. You'll see it. We, we flush out the source, and then we expose the source, and then we make the source pay. And that's been the church's MO for far too long. Maybe that's too broad of a statement. 
That's been many Christians' MO for far too long. Obviously, there is a time for confrontation. There is a time to confront sin. But the goal of confrontation should always be restoration, restoring that relationship. And yet, there's a part of us that wants to take this path when we feel threatened, when we feel pushed into a corner, when we feel like the world is going down the tubes. There's a part of us, let's be honest, that wants to stand up and point our finger and start throwing things. But I think also, once we sort of get over that, or once we see how ineffective that is, we shift more toward this approach. And that is, you know what? I can't control the world, so I'm just going to separate myself from the world. And it's just ignorance. It's, I don't know what's going on. I don't care what's going on. Don't tell me what's going on. I'm better not knowing what's going on. And the idea is that there is this great divide. There is the the sacred, and there is the secular. And this is my Christian life. And that's my work life. And sometimes I even pull that work life in, and I want it to represent God too. But that secular stuff out there, that's the world. And I don't want to know what's going on out there. I don't care what's going on out there. Well, obviously there are some problems with this. How can we reach the world for the cause of Christ if we never engage the world? Which leads us to the next approach, which is very much related to ignorance, and that is isolation. We try for a while to ignore what's going on in the world. We can't really do that. So we just bunker down. We just dig our heels in, bury the school bus in the yard, let's get ready. Right? And so we just isolate ourselves from the world. We usually do this out of fear and anxiety. Cut ourselves off from the world. Fear is a powerful motivator. And fear and anxiety will cause us to do things that we wouldn't normally do. Fear and anxiety will cause us to react and react in ways that ignore reason and logic. How many times have we in church made decisions from a place of fear and anxiety? And usually we get the very results we're trying to avoid. And so a church says, we've got to close our doors to the world. We've got to insulate ourselves from the world. Out there, those people in here, us people, you know, we people, this, two different worlds. So let's close our doors. I mean, that's funny. We don't say that language, close our doors, but that's what we do. Well, what happens? <laughs> well, pretty soon we get the very result of the thing that, that we've done. We close the doors of the church because people stop coming. It's all because we're trying to isolate ourselves. We're caged by our fears. We have this message of freedom. We have been set free in Christ. And yet, because we're afraid, we live inside that fence. We live inside that cage. (laughs) Kind of a side story here. My father-in-law got one of those Alexa, is that what it's called? Personal assistance that you said in the... Well, he is convinced that the government is listening to him. Cool. Yeah, he is, he is convinced. So he, he, he told us that, and my son said, Grandpa, why does the government care about what you're doing? It's <laughs> a very valid point. <laughs> but I think so much of, of what we do is motivated from a place of fear. And that always gets, such in, gets, us, gets us in trouble. But then there is maybe the most dangerous approach to 
a world that is going down the tubes, as we say, and that is to assimilate into that world, to buy into the values of that world. Rather than being a thermostat that sets the temperature, we become that thermometer that reflects the temperature. And so when we act in this way, we slowly, over time, begin to compromise our values and beliefs. Because, after all, the world makes a compelling argument. There's just enough truth, there's just enough reason and logic to buy into what the world is trying to sell us. There's also a lot of social pressure. So we give in to that social pressure, and we become like the world. And that's exactly what happens to Israel. They begin looking more and more like their neighboring nations as they allow those neighboring nations to influence who they are. And so may, may I suggest a different approach? May I suggest that we look at Elijah and see how he approached a world that was clearly ungodly. I mean, they had established themselves as a very pagan society, rebellious toward God. And maybe if we can look at how Elijah lived and how he acted and what he did as he confronted the culture, maybe we can learn some lessons from that as well. What if, rather than doing these things, as ministers, as shepherds, as concerned followers of Christ, what if we doubled down on discipleship? What if we spoke truth into the chaos, but we did it with love, with compassion? But we didn't back down. We did it with boldness, as we will see Elijah does. And so Elijah chose to stand up for God when his world was falling apart. And I think that is our calling and that is our challenge as well. It's interesting that we are introduced to Elijah with just one simple verse of Scripture. No story of his birth, really no commissioning, no calling narrative, just one simple verse. But in this verse, I think, is a bold move. 1 Kings 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe of Gilead said to Ahab, remember Ahab is the king, the evil king, he says to the king, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Elijah says, It's not going to rain, not a drop of rain, no moisture, unless God tells me it's going to happen. Before we sort of look at this message, I want you to just think for a minute about how Elijah might have felt. How he might have felt in this situation. Remember the mess that he's stepping in. God always calls his prophets to step into the mess, into difficult situations, to speak usually a very unpopular word, and that's certainly the case for Elijah. And so how do you think he felt in the situation? Do you think there's a chance he might have felt unqualified? Do you think he might have felt overwhelmed? Do you think he might have felt, God, what are we doing here? I'm out of my league. He's from this little no-name town of Tishbe. It's, it's a small little town. Do you think he felt like he just couldn't do this? Was he afraid? Was he alone? These feelings of being overwhelmed, of being afraid, of having insecurity, those things we talked about before that often cage us, that we can relate to, these feelings, as real as they are for us and likely for him, could have kept him from doing anything 
They could have silenced his message. They could have kept him from stepping up, for standing up, as they often do us. And yet, Elijah seems to push through those. You think about his message. He says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. You think, okay, is he a meteorologist? Or is he a messenger of God? Which is he? Because that message seems fairly benign. I mean, when we talk about the weather, it's usually small talk. Except in Oklahoma, it's not small talk. It's just yesterday. It was crazy there with the weather. And so what is Elijah doing here? We need to read behind the text and see what's going on here. This is very interesting. Who did Ahab marry? Jezebel. Right? Jezebel's father is this king of Sidon, where Baal worships originated. And so when Ahab marries Jezebel, you don't just marry the girl, you marry the family, right? Guess what he gets with Jezebel? He gets this tradition of Baal worship. In fact, do you remember our text earlier? What did he do? He built an altar to Baal in Israel. In the middle of God's people, in the middle of what should be this consecrated, sacred place, he builds an altar to a false god. Presumably because of the influence of his wife and his father-in-law. Now here's where it really gets interesting. Baal, as some of you probably know, is the god of life, the god of the storms, the god of the harvest, rain, and so when Elijah says that it's not going to rain unless God says it's going to rain, unless he tells me it's going to rain, this is a clear act of subversion. This is, this is in direct opposition to the pagan king. Because Baal is the God in charge of rain. And Elijah says it's not going to rain unless the God, the God of heaven, says it's going to rain. What is Elijah doing there? He set himself up as a prophet. And now this has to happen. Yeah. Or not happen. <laughs> We're right. It's not years. going to rain. <laughs> exactly. That's right. He is speaking an unpopular word into this chaos. And he's taking a risk doing it. Like you said, as a prophet, now it has to happen. But if God, God has put this on him. God has placed this message on his heart to share and so he stands up and he shares this message, which on first impression, on the surface, just seems like this benign weather report, but it's so much more. It is in direct defiance to this pagan god and to this evil king. So much of Israel's corruption was rooted in the allegiance to the wrong god. And so much of Elijah's message, I mean, read the text, so much of his message is pointing people back to the God. That's his message. Pointing people back to the God. Reclaiming what belongs to God. And maybe that's the answer. Maybe that's the answer for us. Maybe the answer for us is to not just wring our hands or point our fingers in outrage at the media and the government and everyone else there is to blame for the mess that we are in. Whatever level that's on. Individual, family, community, church, nation. 
rather than wringing our hands and pointing our fingers and crying out and inciting violence and hatred and stirring things up or just putting our heads in the sand and saying, I don't want to know, I don't need to know, don't tell me, I, don't want to, I can't do anything about it. Or obviously just becoming a part of the culture. Maybe our job is to plunge headfirst into the mess, into the chaos, and point people to God. To reclaim the hearts and the minds of people who are created in the image of God for the purposes of God. Maybe that's our purpose, to simply point people to God. Not to get in fights on social media. Not to fuss and fight with each other. Not to compare ourselves to each other. But simply to start pointing people to the glorious God above. When you read Matthew 5, you know, we love to quote, we are the light of the world. You know, what that passage says is, you are the light of the world. And you do these deeds among people so that they will what? They will praise your Father in heaven. You see, our actions, our service, everything we do, everything we say, should reflect the attention and the focus from us to God. They see your good deeds and they praise your Father in heaven. Not you, not me. You point to God. We constantly draw people's attention to God. Lifting above the chaos, the mess, to see God. When literally everyone else seemed to be doing the wrong thing. When the nation's leaders were acting out in godless, careless ways. When the prevailing culture was going down the tubes. When the odds were stacked against him. And it, it appeared that Satan was getting a stronghold on, him, on God's people. Elijah stood up and pointed people to God. You know what Elijah's name means? Even his name means the Lord is God. He couldn't escape his name. He couldn't escape his calling. His purpose was to draw people, compel people, move people to God, to point people to God. And I think our purpose is the same. Don't try to escape your calling. God is still searching for men and women who will stand up and plunge headfirst into the chaos, not extract themselves from it, not try to find the source and blame, but to engage the world with the love and the message of Christ, pointing people to God. It's too easy to fade into the background, right? So often when I speak or preach, I'm preaching to myself. And right now I am talking to myself. It is too easy to fade into the background. I know. It's also very easy just to join the loudest voice out there, isn't it? Whatever the loudest voice is, there's enough truth, there's enough reason, it sounds logical, let's just go along with that. That's all about impression management. That's all about managing our image. Fading back or engaging the loudest voice and joining the loudest voice. You say, well, I don't feel qualified. I don't feel equipped. I don't think Elijah felt equipped or qualified. As I said, we don't really have his call narrative. So often in the call narratives, you have this resistance to God's calling. You remember Moses, the burning bush? Not a good speaker, God. 
never took Toastmasters, you're going to want someone else <laughs> to help these people and lead these people. There's always this resistance. With Elijah, we don't have a call narrative, and we really don't have resistance until maybe later. But I suspect that maybe he didn't feel qualified. Maybe he felt overwhelmed. Maybe he felt inadequate. And yet, what his story reminds us is it wasn't his ability. I mean, remember what he said to the king? Not exactly a stirring sermon, right? I mean, it wasn't uh, highlighting his giftedness. It's God that brings about transformation. That's right. It's not us. It's not our abilities. It's not our talents. It's not our knowledge. It's God working in and through us. It's his spirit working that brings about transformation. God is calling you to stand amid the chaos and point to him. What does this look like for you? I don't know. I'm trying to discover what it looks like in my life. And I hope that you will do the same. Maybe it's on a grand scale. Some of you have influence over many people. Maybe it's on a small scale. Where is God asking you to step up and step into a situation where you can speak a word on his behalf, where you can reclaim what belongs to him, where you can point people to God? Let me tell you about my friend Gil. Gil is probably 85, 86 years old. And one day, about a year ago, Gil called me on the phone. He said, Randy, I need some help. I said, what do you need? He said, well, we're going to baptize a guy. And he's pretty feeble, and I think I need your help to do it. Happy to help. Didn't know what I was getting into. <laughs> so I show up. We pick this time to meet at the church building. I show up there. He says, you might want to get some other guys, too, to help you. I'm thinking, oh, boy. What, what, are, we, what, what are we baptizing? <laughs> and so... I get a couple of the guys, our youth minister, and I think some of the teenagers were up there. And so we get them. Three of us get into waders. Three of us are in the water. Jack is going to be baptized, Gil's friend. Jack is an elderly man. He is a large man. He's a man who is very feeble and he can't see. And so it took three of us in the baptistry and three of us outside of the baptistry to get him down the steps, under the water, back above the water, up the steps, into his wheelchair. It took us literally an hour to baptize Jack. But let me back up and tell you Jack's story because I think that's, that's the outcome. That's the fruit. That's the harvest. What's amazing is Jack's story. Gilbert, my friend, worked with Jack for many years. In fact, Gilbert's son, Mike, also worked with Jack. They sold pharmaceutical equipment. Jack was very successful. Very, very successful. He won all the sales awards. He got all the trips. He was incredibly successful. But Gil and his son, Mike, told me he is a mean guy. He's awful. He's terrible. And it was clear, I actually ended up doing Jack's funeral later, not, not long ago, met with his daughters, his grown daughters. They couldn't stand him. One of them got up and we were talking said, I'll tell you what's important to my dad. And she got up. She walked down the hallway of their house. She took this framed 
certificate off the wall. She brought it in there and she said, this is what was important to my dad. And it was his sales award for selling the most for that year or whatever. They said, he is a mean guy. He's awful. Well, time went by. Jack retired. Gil retired. Jack's wife passed away. For as long as Gil knew Jack, he couldn't see out of one eye. At this point in time, Jack is feeble, he's frail, and one day he falls in his house. Like I said, his wife has passed away, he's living alone. He falls in his house. And the brunt of his fall, as he hits the corner of a china cabinet, hits him on the other eye. The one good eye he had. Didn't get injured anywhere else. He lost that eye. So he became completely blind. Moved into a, an assisted living uh, residence. And lived there a while. And Gil knew he was there. And Gil said, you know, I told my wife about Jack. How mean he was. How awful he was. How no one liked him. Not even his family. He said, and I prayed about it. And he said, I told her, you know, I need to go see him. I need to go see him. And so once a week, Gil would drop by the assisted living residence. And he would visit Jack. And he would always take his Bible. And as he visited Jack, he'd say, Jack, can I read from the Bible? And Jack would say, yeah, he was just happy to have a visitor. And so Gil would read from the scriptures. He wouldn't preach to him. He didn't do anything fancy, anything elaborate. He read from God's word. And over time, week after week, finally one day, Jack said to Gil, hey, I believe this. I want to be baptized. I want to be a Christian. And that's when Gil called me and said, round up the troops and <laughs> we're going to make this happen. I tell you that story because it is a powerful example of what God will do if we will just get out of our cages, get out of our fenced-in insecurities and fears and comparisons and anything else that is holding us back and just speak a word that points people to God. That's what Elijah did. That's what he calls, God calls us to do as well. And maybe when you do that, maybe when you're faithful to that calling, maybe, just maybe, it'll stop raining and people will notice God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And Father, we know that you have called us for your purpose, for your glory. But God... We'll be honest with you. I'll be honest with you. God, sometimes I am afraid. Sometimes I feel grossly inadequate. Sometimes my um, insecurities get in the way. And Father, I just prefer sometimes to live caged by comfort and fear and all those things that keep my mouth shut, that keep me from engaging a culture, a world that desperately needs you. Father, I confess that and I ask that you would Forgive me of that. And if there's someone else here who feels the same way, that you would forgive us. And God, we pray that we would hear your calling on us. That we would simply step into the chaos around us, and there is so much. And say a word of truth. That we'd engage the world with love. That we would embody the gospel. We would speak the gospel. Ultimately, that we would point people to you.
that they would see our lives and our words and our good deeds and they would praise you. Father, help us to have the faith that opens up that cage, that gets us out of our comfort zone, that gets us away from our fears, a place of faith where we can share the truth of you, the truth of your Son with the world, because we know that truth is what makes all the difference. Father, I pray your empowerment over those here, not just in this room, but on this campus this week, that we would be your ambassadors, that we would be your mouthpieces, your messengers, your prophets in a world that is moving away from you. Father, we thank you for calling us. We thank you for forgiving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being here.